Alex Honnold is one of modern climbing's most respected, controversial, and fearless figures. Explain why free soloing is so much more challenging. Well, it's, it's kind of obvious, right? Because if you fall off, you're going to die. Most famous for his death-defying free solo climbs, literally done with no ropes, Honnold reveals the unique mentality behind putting his life on the line for his sport. I read somewhere that you'll actually visualize falling to your death. Is that weird? Do you not do that? Plus, some of his most grueling feats. No stove, no shelter, no food. You're just like, we're carrying all this stuff for 20 hours with like nothing. It was like very depressing. And a glimpse into the unorthodox lifestyle of a pro climber. I'm like, oh, I gotta take a leak. I just like reach over, grab my pee bottle, take a pee in the bottle. <laughs> I don't even have to get out of bed. All that's coming up next, right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I wanted to start off just talking generally about climbing and technique. How often do you climb? I climb probably five days a week, maybe. Five days a week, year-round? Yeah, yeah, probably for the last 20 years, pretty much. How true is it that you got into free soloing originally, which is climbing without yeah. a rope, because you're shy, or, or because you were shy? Um, I mean, that, that definitely was a part of it, just not wanting to walk up to strangers and be like, let's go climbing, because you're like, oh, oh, you know. Yeah, I used to be like way more tweaky. And people, at least who don't know a lot about you, know you climb without a rope, but I think the perception is you only climb without a yeah, rope all the time, which when is in kind reality, of that's completely not the case. Yeah, it's, it's sort of annoying. Everyone thinks you just, that I climb without a rope all the time, and it turns out that I climb with a rope or, you know, in the gym or with partners or whatever almost all the time, and then the soloing is like a handful of things a year. Okay, and, and why, uh, like, like how do you go about determining how often you free solo and well, so how often you I used to, rope? when I was younger, I free soloed a lot more. You know, partially what I'm saying, shyness and partners and all that, but then partially just because um, I enjoy doing like easy mileage, like lots and lots of easy routes, and so I would just go up and down easy things and like tons and tons of routes. So I was doing like a really high volume of easy soloing. And now I like don't really do that anymore just because I don't feel like there's anything for me to gain from it. I feel like that tires me out too much. I'd rather spend that time training on like being a better climber and not just like doing easy stuff. And so, yeah, now I'm just like not actually soloing that much. You know, I save it for like the things that are really important. How do you go about training for a big climb? Typically to prepare for a big solo, I just climb the route several times. Okay. And, and while I'm on the route, I think about what it would be like to, I mean, sometimes when you're climbing something with a rope and then you like, imagine taking the rope off you're like whoa that's really scary you know and so just going through that whole process of like imagining what it'd feel like in the different positions and being like whoa you know this is going to blow my mind or whatever um yeah i mean the preparation is just like making sure that i can physically do it and then also making sure that i'm like mentally prepared to do it what do you bring along with you when you do one of those climbs when what do you mean when you're when i'm doing a big solo yeah um I mean, it depends a little bit. If I'm gonna solo something that will take less than an hour and a half or so, then I often go with nothing at all. Just, you know, my climbing shoes and my chalk bag, and then I just climb up, and when I get to the top, I just like walk down barefoot or whatever. Right. Um, if I'm doing something longer than that, then I generally take like a small backpack with like my, my hiking shoes to get down, um, a little bit of food, a little bit of water. It just depends on what I'm doing. How much does gear slow you down? I mean, whether it's... Climbing with a rope yeah. and a partner? Right. Well, so as soon as you add a rope and a partner, you're going to spend at least twice as long because you climb a section and then your partner climbs the same section. So that's like at least double the time. And then it's more than that because you also have to futz around with all the gear and like sort things out and like, you know, make sure the rope is organized and like all those kinds of things. 
So I mean, it takes probably two or three times longer. So I've read uh, sometimes or when you're climbing. Really. I've read sometimes when you're climbing with rope, though, you'll use so little hardware in connecting the rope that if you fall, you could fall 150 feet. And yeah. so I'm thinking when I'm reading this, what's the point of even climbing well, so with a rope then if you can fall 150? That sort of belies like the reality. Like that doesn't really do justice because even if you have gone say 50 meters without placing any gear, so mm -hmm. you're looking at taking this monstrous fall. Right. The thing is that you still have the rope on you and you still have gear on you. So if you get to a single move that feels kind of difficult, you can just put in a piece of gear and suddenly you're safe again. Okay. So I mean, you're only going super far if you feel comfortable. I mean, that's how, that's how we speed climb big walls and things like that is that you go really, really far without placing gear, but you have it on you just in case. So if at any point you're like, oh, this feels slippery, you can just put in gear and be like, okay, I'm good. Okay. You know, so I mean, you have like this major backup. How often do you climb in the dark? Uh, I've done, you know, a fair amount of night climbing. Uh, and so, why? Um, well, sometimes you're just climbing for 24 hours straight, you know, it gets dark. You'll literally hike for 24, or climb for 24 hours straight? Yeah, I mean, I have, yeah. Without this is taking the last, a, like, without sleeping? This last season in Patagonia, um, my partner and I did a 53-hour push. So it's like 53 hours of, like, continuous effort. And how much do you sleep during this? No, like, that's, like, continuous 53 hours of, like, climbing, hiking, you know, fleeing and, for our lives. And how, like, like how do you get tired. to the point where you can do that? Oh, you just build up to it. I don't know. I mean, I remember the first time I climbed El Cap in a day, it took us 22 hours and I was crushed, like so worked, you know, I was, I was 21 or something and like it was the biggest effort I'd ever done and it was like, I was useless as a climber for the next like five or six days. And, and now, and now El I'm Capitan like, is like the Everest of rock climbing. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly like, that's a fair analogy, yeah. It's the most beautiful one in the world, somewhere. I think. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. I'm gonna use that sometimes. Uh, but so 53 hours of climbing. So the thing with our 53 hour push is like, we did a 24 hour push climbing, and then we wound up, we were supposed to get to the summit of Saratori, which is like a really big mountain, and then rappel back off the east side, which is where our camp was. But instead this epic storm came, we sat for a few hours, the st we got worked, we wound up having to retreat down the west side, which is like the opposite side of the mountain range. So then when we got down, after like six hours of rappelling in a storm, we had to walk all the way around the mountain range to get back to, to town. And we're on like the southern ice cap, which is like one of the biggest glaciers in the world, basically. And so then we just, and we had no more food or like we had no supplies, we have no tent because we were just trying to do one continuous push climbing. So then we just had to walk back to town. It's like if you don't, if you don't walk out, you'll just perish, you know? Right. Because <laughs> like we didn't have food, so it's not, it's not as if you can just like sleep for a day and feel better, you know? It's Wait, like what we're do you mean you have food? Well, we'd already eaten our food because okay. we'd already done like 24 hours of climbing. Okay. So and like and for, you thought you would be done? Yeah, so had we finished the way we were supposed to and had we not gotten stuck in the storm, right. we would have been done in 24 hours. We would have been a little bit hungry, but we would have wound up right at our camp. We would have cooked dinner and we would uh -huh. have hiked out. It would have been great. Right. But instead, we sat for like four more hours. We repelled, for, like we got worked. And then we had to walk for 20 hours without, without food, which is pretty grim, like hiking on a glacier with like, and we were carrying backpacks like full of climbing gear. It's like 20, 30 pounds worth like, you know, crampons, boots, like ropes, all this stuff, and like nothing useful at all. You know, like no tent, no stove, no shelter, no food. You're just like, we're carrying all this stuff for 20 hours with like nothing, it was like very depressing. But my partner had the strategy where you just walk until you get warm, and then you just lay down in the trail and fall asleep until you get cold again, which is like 15 minutes, and then you wake up shaking, because I mean, we were just like laying down in the dirt in the rain, and you'd fall asleep for like 15 minutes, and then be like, oh my God, we're cold, and then start walking again until you got warm. It was really grim. <laughs> <laughs> Man. It's like, 
Yeah. And what's the worst conditions you've ever been in when you've been high up? Soloing or with a with a rope? Um, either. Well, with a rope, like, I mean, horrible conditions. Like, I mean, this experience I'm just talking about in Patagonia, like, you know, nuclear winds, and we were we were at the top of this, like, icy spire. So we were, like, connected to a sheet of ice, like, literally hanging from ice screws, like, sitting on ice, waiting for, like, four hours, hoping that the sky would clear. Because the forecast that we'd seen a couple of days before looked like it should get better. It turns out the forecast had changed, and it never got better. But so, I mean, it's Patagonia. It's, like, nuclear winds, overcast. Well, and, and the thing about Patagonia, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's no other land mass anywhere in the world yeah. in, in line with it, so there's nothing to block yeah. the wind, so they're just constant It just rages across the, the ocean, time. yeah, right. yeah. The wind is legendary and, like, definitely lives up to it. You're like, whoa. I read somewhere that you'll actually visualize falling to your death. Well, I mean, I have thought about it for sure. Like, what? Why? Because... It'd be worse to have never thought about that and then suddenly be in the position and be like, holy shit, you know? Like, it's better to think through, like, every different side of something. I mean, the thing is, like, if the idea of falling to my death is, like, insurmountable, like, if I can't get past that fear, then, like, I probably shouldn't be up there. You know, you can't just, like, suppress that and then just, like, I mean, you have to accept, like, the whole experience. Yeah, and what will you see when you visualize falling to your death? Well, I mean, you'd bounce off that ledge 20 meters below. You'd probably bounce off the ledge 40 meters below that. Eventually, you would just fall to the ground, and you'd be, like, dead. And you, you'll literally, well, I, mean, I mean, see yourself doing that. I mean, is that weird? Do you not do that? <laughs> well, I'm not a pro climber either, so no. But I like, I mean, haven't you ever like when you're driving, haven't you ever thought about what it'd be like to just like veer into one of those little divide things on a highway and just like have your car explode or something? I Surely mean, you've thought about it. Yeah, I mean, or you like think if you're on not, a single lane with, freeway going not super with as fast. Much detail is. I think it's important to like, to yeah, to actually think it all the way through. Because the thing is, there are a lot of places with big walls. I mean, people always think that with, with soloing big walls, like, if you fall, you die. And, I mean, that is true on the bulk of the wall. But there are a lot of places where if you fell off, you'd probably land on the ledge right below you. Or you could probably, if you were thinking about it, you could probably grab something. Or, like, you know, if you're in a chimney system and you slip, I mean, you can basically self-arrest inside the chimney, which I've done before, but not soloing with a rope on. Um, you know, so, I mean, I think it's important to, like, think all that stuff through. You know, like... Um, one of the big solos that I did was, was half dome. And like technically the hardest moves on the route are like on the fourth pitch, like say 400 feet off the ground. It's like the hardest physical sequence and it's above this big ledge thing that's kind of like a picnic table or maybe like two picnic tables almost. So I mean, if you fell off the hardest moves, you would almost for sure land on the ledge and stick it. So I mean, it actually takes a lot of the commitment out where it's like, if you fall off the hardest part, you're not gonna die, probably. Though I mean, there's quite a bit of other hard climbing on the route, but um, you know, I mean, I, I think it's important to know that kind of stuff. So free soloing and, you know, climbing with or without a rope is pretty much the same physically, you've said. Yeah. But mentally, explain why free soloing is so much more challenging. Well, it's, it's I mean, kind of obvious, right? Because if you fall off, you're going to die. So it's like, obviously, there's a lot more, like, fear involved and, like, there's a lot more, there's more second guessing or there's just more going on in your head. Yeah, but, you, I mean, you said for the most part, fear is kind of out of it for you at... The, yeah, this but, point. but so. the make, getting the fear out of it is all like. I mean, I get for me, do. I'd be scared. Yeah, but so, but like overcoming that fear is something that you go through beforehand, like before soloing. Hopefully, you know, you like visualize, you deal with all those things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know. You just got to go try it. It's you know? <laughs> not happening today. Um, it might be. It, why is it important to avoid getting your adrenaline going? Uh, well, I mean, it's important to have, 
avoid any kind of major fear response type thing just because I mean you have like physiological changes you know your vision narrows your your breathing accelerates like you get you over grip like I mean it happens a lot of time when you're climbing with a rope you'll be like super super scared and you like can't see anything and you're holding on super tight and you're like oh my god and then you get a piece of gear in and you like clip your rope and all of a sudden you're safe and then you're like oh and you relax and then you're like oh there's this other huge hold right here that I should have grabbed but didn't see and then you're like oh and there's a foothold and suddenly you're like way more relaxed and so, I mean, you want to stay in that relaxed state the whole time. But, but I think I've read before, too, that you said it's not even good to just get pumped for a, a, a climb. You mean like I'm, amped up? Yeah, like amped up. Um, yeah, again, because I feel like that's a bit of a crutch if you just like... I mean, that's something that somebody, that a lot of people have done on smaller routes. Like if you're soloing something that's only like 30 or 40 meters, say like 100, 150 feet high, you can get like all super psyched up and then climb it and it'll take you like four or five minutes. So you can kind of maintain that like artificial high of like, I'm so psyched, here we go. Yeah. You know, but like if you're climbing like a 2000 foot wall, you can't just be like, here we go. You know, cause like five minutes later, you're like, oh my God, I'm really scared now. Or I'm like tired or whatever. It's like, you know, you can't just like artificially amp yourself up. You have to like have a nice even, you know, like controlled. The triple, yeah. uh, put the difficulty of that into context. Um. I mean, it's pretty hard. I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, time will tell. Maybe in five years it'll be easy. Maybe people will do that all the time. I mean, yeah, so doing the trip when you somebody would be comparable to some kind of like super ultra marathon or something. Like, I can't really think of other sporting events because, you know, it's like doing a bunch of really hard things back to back um, all very quickly. You know, so I mean, other sports is like you just play the game and you're done. Right. But like, you know, so it'd be like doing Ironman maybe, but like, but way more than that because... You know, a lot of people do Ironmans. What was involved with doing it? The triple? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the triple is just the three biggest walls in Yosemite in a day. But I mean, if you just add up the time that like average parties spend on each route, I mean, like climbing El Cap, which is just one of the three walls, people typically spend, you know, two to five days. <laughs> and then climbing Half Dome, people typically spend, you know, I mean, most people spend one or two days on the face, but a lot of people camp at the base and then spend a day walking down. You know, it's like people spend two or three days like total experience. And then climbing the third wall, people, same thing. People spend two or three days, or like two days on the wall, plus a day of hiking to get on and off. So, I mean, it's like a week and a half's worth of climbing. And, you know, for an average party, you'd have to rest for a day in between each of those, or you'd rest for two or three days because you'd be pooped. You know, and so, yeah, it's like a week or two worth of climbing, and you're doing that all in like an 18-hour push. How do you do it in 18 hours? Uh, it's like a byproduct of style, like what I'm saying. Just, um, I mean, so I did it, I think, solo in 1850, I think. Um, and that's because... You know, I was basically climbing without a rope and just moving pretty quickly. And, and I knew the roots really well, and I was like really, you know, I was dialed on that whole thing. The uh, free solo of Half Dome, uh, what went on when you got to Thank God Ledge? Just like 60, 70 feet above Thank God Ledge is like this really smooth, hard slab. It's just like blank. And that's kind of characteristic of granite is that there aren't like things to hold on to. You just have to like paste your feet against the wall and like trust the rubber on your shoes to stick and you just have to like crawl up at like a gecko or something kind of and is that where yeah. you noticed uh a bolt sticking out of yeah. the wall yeah so normally people climb that section of wall and it's like a blank smooth wall normally people clip into the bolts and then like stand on the bolts and clip the next one and, and right. go up the bolts like a ladder and so i was climbing and then i got to a certain move that was that felt insecure for me and i had to trust a foothold that i didn't want to stand on and i got all scared and it's like weird there too because you're right below the summit so I could like hear all these tourists on the summit and it was like this whole crazy experience where 
you know, I'm like super scared and like all, you know, I've been free soloing for two and a half hours and it's like getting physically or like mentally exhausted, just like tired of being up on this wall. And then get to a certain point, get all scared. I can like hear people laughing above me and stuff. And you're like, this is so weird. <laughs> like, I just want to be done. You know, I'm so close. And yet, and then, yeah, and there was a bolt like right in front of me. So I really wanted to grab the bolt and like cheat. But then I was also like, oh, I don't want to invalidate the whole, you know, 2,000 feet of climbing I did to get here. And so, I mean, ultimately, I just like sorted through it and I like stepped on the foot and I, you know, I, I did it. So you get to the top and yeah. what are tourists saying to you? When you get up so there. it's weird because normally when you get to the top of Half Dome, when you have a rope and a partner, you get like mobbed with tourists who are like, oh my God, you climbed the face. That's so crazy, so extreme. But like when I soloed it, I got to the top and I was like shirtless and all like jacked. You know, just like, oh my God, you know, because I just had this crazy experience right below the top. Right. And, but I had like nothing on me. I had no backpack and like no, no climbing stuff. And, you know, I was just like shoes, harness, chalk, or no harness, just shoes and chalk bag, you know. And then, and I like wanted somebody to be like, that's rad, you know, cause I just had like one of the biggest experiences of my life and like nobody noticed at all, you know, cause I just looked like some hiker hanging out. Right. And I was just like, that's so weird. And then, and then I hiked down barefoot and then on the walk down, cause you, you can't hike in climbing shoes, it's too tight. And then on the hike, everyone's like, oh my God, you're barefoot, that's so extreme. And you're like, <laughs> you're just like, what a weird day. You know, like it's so, it's so crazy. How did living out of a van come about? No, I mean, living out of a van is pretty common for climbers. But basically it's just because seasons change and you want to move. So it makes sense to be in your car. You've kind of outfitted it a little bit yeah, from well, so the early I've, days. I've done three different builds inside my van. Um, the three original, different builds? Well, yeah, three different okay. interiors. Like the first one, like an uncle and I built in like an afternoon. Okay. It's like pretty scrappy. And then the second one I had a friend build and it was like quite a bit nicer. And then the most recent one I had another like retired engineer friend build and it's like really nice. But. So, um, how did it get the nickname the pedophile van? Oh, I mean, anyone living in a van gets like pedophile jokes. I mean, I have no windows, I have a blacked out back. Like, I mean, it looks like a total. Yeah, but I mean, everyone has like jokes. So what is it, like, what do you have in there? Uh, my van is like a bed, a bunch of storage underneath, like a little kitchen counter, a stove built into it, and then, yeah, food. And I mean, it's really basic, but it's like a small apartment. I mean, somebody I was talking to told me that, you know, you've been in, the suburbs visiting somebody and they had an available bedroom and you still go out and sleep in your van. Yeah, people think that's weird to be like, oh, I sleep in the van. But the thing is the van is like my home and I've been living in it for eight years. And also like, I've gotten used to having everything within reach. Like when I'm sleeping in the van, I'm like, oh, I gotta take a leak. I just like reach over, grab my pee bottle, take a pee in the bottle. I don't even have to get out of bed. And it's like, when you get used to that after eight years, like it feels like so uncivilized to have to like get out of your bed, turn on a light, wander to the bathroom. I'm like, why would I do that? It like totally wakes you up. It's like, you can just like pee in your bottle, fall back asleep. It's like, it's totally seamless. I mean, you could just Things bring like the pee bottle into yeah, the bedroom. Yeah, yeah, you could, but that's even you're... weirder when you're staying in somebody's house and they're like, wait, you brought your pee bottle in? <laughs> you know? I don't know. It's just like, I mean, I love my van. Everything's within reach. It's all like right there. Like. Any, you know, if I'm like, oh, I want to like look something up in my journal or whatever, it's like, oh, there it is. And like, it's all within arm's reach. Um, how long before you see yourself getting a permanent residence? I mean, that you spend um, you know, more time. I don't know, my van's up to 206,000 miles, so it's starting to get a little tired. Okay. Um, so I might need something different soon. Do you think you're gonna just get a new van? Um, I probably will get a new van, but um, but also actually this summer I bought uh, my family's cabin, like uh, my extended Lake Tahoe, family, right? yeah, yeah, in South Lake Tahoe. 
So um, so now I do technically own a home, but it's only like a summer cabin that my grandpa mm -hmm. built or whatever. But, so the new van that you get, same type of van, or will you? I'll get something get bigger, a, I think. Like a sleeper home type deal. No, I'd probably get just like a. I'd get some kind of van where I could stand up. Okay. That's the main bummer about living in my car is that I can't stand up. And I understand you'll bring girls back to the van. I mean, you pick if I a, can, you know, if, I, if I'm lucky, pick up a girl <laughs> out and you'll like. What's yeah. the girl's reaction where you're like? Hey, but any, anybody, you anybody who like look, for climbers, that's not that weird, you know. And also, taking somebody to a van is way cooler than taking somebody to a tent. Right. You know, like if you're hanging out in a campground, it's like going to a tent is so uncivilized. Yeah, but okay, I, I know you dated a girl in New York for a while that was actually lived a normal lifestyle. And yeah, yeah. But then it's like kind of like, you know, it's like, it's something different. It's all adventurous. You're like, oh, you know. But also, I mean, the thing about the van is like the van might not be that sweet, but the fact that you're parking it in the most beautiful places on earth, I mean, that's the sweet part. Right. Like the thing that you get to do whatever you love most, that you're like having cool adventures every day. I mean, like where you're sleeping is like not really that important compared to like what you're doing with the rest of your day. And you know, by living in the van, I'm able to like stay in Yosemite for months at a time, and that's like pretty awesome. And I think even chicks can appreciate that being in Yosemite is better than like having a nice apartment like in the city. How much do you think being in a relationship interferes with your climbing? A relationship stuff is tough. I don't know, but it's a big so, predicament for yeah, you. Yeah. So right? I mean, I dated a very nice girl on and off for like five years, five and a half or something. Um, throughout, I mean, like when I did the trip on Yosemite, I was like in a real relationship at the time. And so when I look at, I mean, I have a climbing journal and I have it all like laid out. So, I mean, I know that objectively the times that I was in a serious relationship doesn't actually change my performance of climbing at all. You know, like I was climbing at a high level, like regardless. But for some reason, when you're single, you just feel a little more hunger, you know, you just like, you feel like you're more motivated or like training harder. Um, I don't know, even though it's not strictly true, but. Um, yeah, I don't know, relationships is tough. What do you struggle with about it? I mean, I struggle with the amount of travel, as I'm sure, I'm sure you probably do too, or maybe a lot of travel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, just like with constant trips and like gone for a month, gone for another month. And it's like, if somebody has a normal job and they like live in a normal city, it's like, you know, either you basically never see them or I don't know, it's just hard to make it work. And have you... Yeah, I mean, decided where you come out on that, where you want to make a commitment to really trying to make a relationship work, or whether you've just decided it's not worth it to um, continue becoming I a better I climber. haven't, like, made any decision one way or another. I mean, I'm sure if I met the right person, I was, like, super excited. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be easy for me to, to make certain, or, I mean, I feel like I could make certain compromises and, like, train indoors a little bit more or just make it work, you know, or maybe, um, maybe if it was a climber, you know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm open to whatever. It just, just hasn't happened. So how early did you start climbing? Um, I mean, I started climbing in the gym when the first gym opened in Sacramento. I think I was 10 or 11, maybe 11. What did you enjoy about it? I just have always, I mean, so even before the gym opened, I was like climbing on trees and buildings and like climbing on the roof and like playing on things. I love like swinging on the, on the monkey bars, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've that, always I mean was like, this like typical kid playing around or was this kind of above and beyond what most kids I mean, it was do. just like in a more extreme version of typical kid playing okay. around. Cause it's the same, like I was playing on all the same stuff, but I was just probably taking it a few steps further. Yeah. You know, like, oh uh, yeah. Like, I remember like hiding on the roof of the school, like, you know, <laughs> things like that, just random. Um, but yeah, and then once the gym opened, I love the movement. I just love like, yeah, I love the movement of climbing. And that's always been like the core of it. What's your earliest climbing memory? I remember 
like my home gym, like the original gym that opened in Sacramento has a bunch of roots like carved into the, the walls are like sort of plaster and they have like carved roots in the walls. It's like normally, you know, they change the roots around because it's holes that you screw on, but the ones that are carved into the wall are like permanent plaster. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of those roots, like I still could go in and climb a couple of them blindfolded. I haven't been there in like 10 years, but I just like know every single move on a lot of those roots because I climbed them like many times a day for my entire childhood. What? And so like in some ways that kind of like muscle memory type thing is like what I remember most of like my early gym experiences. Uh, like, I mean, I could easily like draw out the sequence for like half the things in that old gym. I'm just like, yeah, it's, it's classic. Uh, family life and upbringing. Uh, you know, your friend told me the household you grew up in, there really wasn't a lot of love. Your dad was sleeping on the couch, uh, you know, most nights. He said your mom was kind of frosty and distant. And in his perspective, it just didn't seem like your parents really wanted to be parents. Um, how did that affect you? No, I'm frosty and cold, so I don't know. No, I mean, I don't know. I mean, and, and that might be a bit, you know, he, he's like given too much on one side a little bit, mm -hmm. but um, I don't know. I mean, the thing is like, when you're a kid, that all seems normal. So you just think that that's like the way things are. It's not until you're adult that you're like, oh wow, it seemed like my family scene is like a little bit different than, than, than the typical. Um, but you know, it's all, it's all worked out well. Well, I mean, what do you think as an adult though? Looking well, back. as an adult, I think that my parents probably should have gotten divorced when we were like little kids and they would have led like happier, more well-adjusted lives. Um, I think that they just did a little bit too much of the like stay together for the kids type of thing and they just weren't like personally fulfilled and like personally happy in there. Because um, it's funny, they got, they got divorced after um, I graduated high school. It was like the classic, you know, stay together until the kids leave and then, and then be done. And like for the year, um, the year after they divorced, they were both like so much cooler to be around and so much happier and like nicer people. And I was like, dude, you guys should have done this like 15 years ago. You know, I was like, right. so, or maybe 10 years ago. But it, yeah, so much nicer. But then my dad unfortunately died the next year. And so then like never really got to see like him as the normal. Like a lot of my older cousins and stuff talk about how cool my dad was when he was young. But like I only knew him as like an older guy who was like not that happy, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of too bad I never got to see him as like, you know, his own person. You went through a, a period, like a year that seemed like it must have been really tough because I think it was the day before you were moving into college, your grandpa passes away. Then I, I think you find out around that time that your parents are divorcing and then within a year of that, your dad dies of the heart attack. Mm -hmm. How difficult was that period for you to go through? Both my grandparents and my father all died within like the end of high school, beginning of college. Okay. But, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it was hard, but but it's one of those things where, like, when you're going through it, it just, you know, that's just that's just life. I don't know. And especially as a teenager, I was, like, all angstful on anything anyway. So it's, like, I don't know. And the whole, and tied up with all the other family, like, like we just weren't, like, close in, in the way some families are. And so it didn't feel, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Well, somebody told me that at the time it didn't really seem like you were struggling with anything and you were just normal Alex. But then uh, somebody told me that uh, the 20 the year old Alex didn't really realize what he lost when his dad passed away, but the 30 year old Alex knows very clearly. Yeah, I think that's actually kind of fair. Is that I think it was 19 year old Alex didn't really appreciate like what I lost when my dad died. And then, yeah, as an adult, I'm like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. Um, yeah, but I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's being a kid is like not fully appreciating things, not quite understanding at all. Like, I mean, you just don't have, I, I didn't have like the proper framework to put it all in.
one of your close friends did tell me that probably half of your friends and family think you'll end up dying young. Um, I don't know. Do, I don't know if that's true. You don't think that's true? I don't, okay, know. Well, I don't I, think my I don't think my family thinks so. You don't think so? I don't know. I mean, maybe. Well, maybe they all keep it. Like when I leave the room, they're all like, "Thank God he hasn't died yet." You know. But I think it's like pretty chill. I don't know. I just went to like a my cousin's birthday. You know, like a bunch of family all congregated and like. I mean, there was definitely no mention of any kind of climbing related. I mean, it's just well, like it's not like they're going to go up to you and be like, no, hey, I mean, Alex, you're probably going to die soon. I mean, yeah, but nobody's ever, <laughs> like, none of the family's ever been like, we're worried about you or like, you know, this is, I don't know. But, I mean. I think they're blissfully and, unaware. Or or they are just uh, obviously worried, or they don't but have come to understand you're doing what you love. And yeah, maybe. that's just, you know. They, they can't worry about whether yeah, or not something's going to go wrong. I honestly don't know if my friends are like that. I mean, a lot of my close climbing friends, like, have talked to me about, I mean, you know, obviously we have a ton of conversations about risk-reward and, like, you know, what you're doing with your life and all those kinds of things. But not that many of my friends are honestly like, dude, I think you're going to die doing this. you got to back off. I mean, Which, Tommy Caldwell has called free soloing reckless and stupid, and he doesn't, said he doesn't want to see no, you No, he's been, he's been quoted in articles and interviews saying that. But, like, okay. I mean, obviously, like, I've hiked with them for, like, hours and hours in and out of the mountains, you know, and right. we've talked about all this stuff extensively. And so, I mean, like, selectively quoting, you know, like, when he's chatting with me personally, he's not like, what you're doing is reckless and stupid, and, you know. I mean, he, he, he definitely would never do that, and he does mm -hmm. think it's irresponsible. But, like, I don't know. That's a little too black and white. Okay. You know. To, to what extent have you ever considered the pain you'd cause friends or family if you died while climbing without a rope? I mean, very little, which I don't know if that's supposed to make me feel bad or not. But, like, honestly, I don't really... I mean, I worry about my own survival, like, for myself, not for, like, the pain that it would cause friends or family. How do you view death? Um, I guess I, I mean, that's heavy duty. Um, I guess I view death as just, like, the natural end to every life. I mean, it's just something that we're all going to experience. It's well, I, I mean, I asked because Tommy Caldwell was, and again, yeah. never know the context of yeah, yeah. this stuff, but uh, was quoted as saying, most of us think dying is a really serious thing, but I don't think Alex does. No, I think it's the most serious thing. I mean, I think it's like, I mean, I would say, like, actually, um, so I was, like, casually dating a nice girl earlier this year. And, like, she would get, like, worked up about a lot of things. And, like, I get worked up about almost nothing. And I kept saying that the only thing I get worked up about is, like, mortal peril. Like, if there's actual risk of death, you know, like, if you could die, I mean, that's the one thing that you should genuinely be super stressed about. Everything else is, like, losing possessions, like, wasting time, like, all those kinds of things. You're, like... Whatever, not that significant. Okay, but, but some, if you might actually die, like that's significant. Somebody watching this would say, "What do you mean? I, I mean, you're in those situations all the time. We were talking about half dome and you know stepping yeah, on yeah, a, yeah. a rock where yeah. literally you thought there was a chance you might fall to your yeah." And so, I mean, I'm, I can understand why somebody watching this would say, "What do you mean? How, how do you not think that?" And you know, half the free solo climbs. You, yeah, but you so do. I think because of the stuff that I'm doing, because of the soloing, because of the climbing, I think that has given me this relationship with that. You know, like, it's put everything in perspective where it's like death is the only thing that's, like, truly significant. Um, or maybe, I don't know, that sounds a little morbid. That's maybe not correct, because I'm sure, like, at some point if I have a family or something, then, you know, I'll probably think that, like, my family is, like, as significant as, you know, but... How, um, how many top free soloists have there been over the past 50 years, and of those, how many have died My favorite soloing? statistic is that no free soloist has ever died pushing the limits of soloing.
Like no no elite climber has ever died pushing solo. Yeah, but at least my understanding of it is oftentimes the free soloists die doing the free solo climbs yeah, that so aren't pushing a, the a limit. A couple soloists have died on easy terrain. Well, two soloists have died on easy terrain. Um, and then a handful of people who were known as soloists died in like peripheral activities, like you know, adventuring in the mountains or being swept out to sea. One of them was just like taken by a rogue wave. But so people always quote like, you know, these five cutting edge soloists have all died. And you're like, yeah, but most of them died in like freak accidents, you know? And the thing is everybody dies from something. I mean, one of like France's best soloists from the eighties recently died falling down a flight of stairs, which is just, you know, he was like an older guy and just whatever, he fell down and broke his whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I just don't think it's fair to be like, elite soloist died and died falling. You know, you're like, yeah, come on, he's like a 55-year-old man on a staircase or whatever. It's crazy. So if you're midway up on a climb and you stick your fingers in a handhold and a scorpion bites your fingers or, you know, some other section, a bird or a bat yeah, flies yeah. out or a rock falls, the unexpected, how yeah, do you so, deal with that? Yeah, I mean, that does happen, like, a fair amount. and. And that's when you do get like a shot of adrenaline or like a shot of fear and you like your your breathing accelerates and you're like, oh gosh. And that's when you just have to like force yourself to take some deep breaths and calm yourself down and just deal with it. Though oftentimes those things, by the time they've happened, it's it's already happened and done. So even though you get scared for a second, you're like, well, it's done. It's like the situation's already resolved. So then rationally you can just be like, this is, you know, moving on. Here we go. Any close calls? I mean, all those things that you described have happened, you know, like scorpions, like bats, birds, you know, bees. I mean, any close calls though where, you know, you're free soloing and that happens and um, you have that kind of... No, I've never you, like... You catch yourself. The closest or, calls have been breaking holds, like pulling rocks off. You know, I've had a, like something where, you know, I pulled a rock off and like as I'm leaning back with the rock with me, I managed to like shove the rock back into place and sort of like catch my balance and like stay on the wall. Okay. Like, whoa. And I've had like scrambling in the mountains, not quite like free soloing on a vertical wall, but like climbing a big peak in the mountains. I've like pulled some rocks off and then done some like Super Mario type jumps where you like jump to a ledge, jump to another ledge and sort of stick it with all these rocks falling past you. And you're like, whoa, that was close. You know, things like that. So the most frightened I understand you've ever been climbing was just on a typical conventional rope climb. I think you were with your girlfriend at the time. Yeah, yeah, I've written um, that up. Like, um, what, what about that it was so scary? Um, well, I mean, so that whole anecdote is like when you're climbing with a rope on, you're more willing to push yourself like further and further because you just keep thinking, if I go a little more, I'll get some good piece of gear in or like, you know, you're willing to like push a little more because you have that safety. You have like more of a margin. But so it means that you can get yourself into these situations where like you would never get yourself free soloing because free soloing, you look and be like, oh, I, I want no part of that and you'd climb back down. Right. But with a rope, you're like, well, I'll just try a little bit and just see how it is. And then you start you get into something and you're like, oh, I can't reverse that now because, you know, like you do things when you're roped up that like you wouldn't do soloing. And so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I've, I've had a couple like pretty scary experiences with the rope So what, the, what was the actual situation there? I mean, it's almost like too technical and long okay. to describe properly, but it's like basically I just like climbed really, really far and I couldn't get any protection in. And I Any protection meaning you couldn't I couldn't get, get, I couldn't get gear into the rock, okay. so I couldn't clip my rope to anything. So the thing is, I mean, even if you have a rope on, if you're like 100 feet above your last piece of gear, you're looking at taking a 200 foot fall. And so, I mean, it's like, sweet, you have a rope on, but you're still gonna fall 200 feet. Like, that'd still be a disaster. <laughs> right. um, I mean, you might be okay, but you might break both your legs and like bleed out on the side of the wall or something. It's like, who knows? Um, 
yeah, so I mean, it was an experience like that where I like thought I could go further and then like the rock got really bad and I couldn't get any protection. And then there were like these big loose blocks that looked like um, if I pulled on them, they might fall off and then chop my rope, which is another way you could die with the rope on. Um, I don't know, it was just like a long drawn out thing. So and also my topo was incorrect, like the little map I have that showed me where the route's supposed to go. Um, it turns out it just was an error. So like what I was doing was quite a bit harder than I thought it was supposed to be. And so it was all just like, oh my God, this is too hard. This feels wrong. Like everything's going bad. It's like scary. How do you view fame? I view fame as like a, a means to an end. And the end is to be able to climb my whole life without having to work. And fame is like a very useful way to do that. How do you view media and sponsors? I don't know, I mean, yeah, media and sponsors are all just like part of the whole game. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I love being able to go climbing all the time and, and sponsorship and media and like, you know, making films and writing books and all those kinds of things all just sort of tie into like enabling this lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And to be able to share the lifestyle with people, which has never been like my goal, but it is nice to be able to like inspire other people and to like, I mean, throughout my life, I've gotten a lot of inspiration from like seeing climbing films and like reading people's books and like reading climbing magazines and like, you know, I've, I've taken a lot from the climbing community and that's like really inspired me to like go out and push myself. And so it's nice to be able to contribute to that whole culture a little bit. Generally, why do you think it's so difficult for most climbers to be able to earn a living from the sport? I mean, generally climbing just isn't that big a sport, so there's not much money in it, so there's not that much to go around. I mean. It's hard to like make a living from sponsorship. But that's changing a little bit though because climbing's growing so quickly and gyms are taking off. And like, I mean, the sport of climbing is wildly different now than it was 10 years ago. What do you think has allowed it to become financially lucrative for you? I mean, financially lucrative might be overstating it because it's well, like, well, I mean, you know, it, like it's the all top relative, climbers right? we, in the world we, are like getting paid less than a dentist. Right. You know? I mean, I was going to say so we like, featured Shaq, yeah. who's making twenty yeah. million a year. So it is all relative. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I mean, if you're, I mean, I read some stats about the NFL, and it was talking about like the base salary or something for like basically you can be the worst player in the entire league, and you're still making like easily twice as much as any of the climbers in the world. Yeah, but the difference you know? is too, the average lifespan of somebody in the NFL is three, four years, mm. um, and then most are Yeah, climbing is like 20 years. a couple of years. What's well, because they right. don't save properly. Right, so, you that's, know. that's true. Because they buy a tiger or whatever. Right. <laughs> freaking, they have to feed you it Mike Tyson too before. Yeah, I don't yeah. know, I saw that. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it is obviously all relative, but making a couple hundred grand a year or whatever it is, I mean, that's a good living and definitely yeah. better than most think, and it's think doing it, what you love. So, I mean, what do you think is allowed? I think I've been lucky with the sponsorship stuff because the type of climbing that I like doing the most, the soloing and everything, is also like the easiest to understand for a general audience. It's like the most visually appealing. You know, even though it's not nearly as difficult as something like the Dawn Wall, let's say. But so like the things that I'm doing, you can just show like one image and you're like, that's amazing. That's so beautiful. That looks so cool. And so like it's easy to it's easy to sell, you know, what do you and you've been open about this before. Um, what do you live off of uh, annually now? And when you were living off the, you know, there was a yeah, point so, where I mean, you it were was, living off very little and probably more now. But yeah, well, so no, it's been published that I was living off like a grand a month or less or right. something. Um, I mean, when I first started traveling, it was probably less than that because it was just food and gas, and I was like shopping at like Walmart and like terrible places, you know, just buying like the cheapest pasta. And it's like, oh, 68 cents for dinner? That's perfect. You know, and now obviously I spend a lot more on food. When, yeah. when you did not have, uh, or when you had very little money, um, what did that teach you about, you know, savings and all of that? No, I mean, the thing is, I've always lived the same way. Like I only buy things if I need them. 
and I still just like don't spend money frivolously. I don't like I don't have any things, you know. Mm -hmm. But the difference uh, then versus now is you're able to have money to sort of plan for. Yeah, yeah. Now, now it's awesome to be able to like save money, and and also I have a foundation now, and so I've been giving probably a third of my income to charity, um, like environmental nonprofits and stuff, which is pretty sweet to be able to like try to do something positive like that. But um, which is pretty substantial too, because, I mean, you know, you do well, but I mean a third of yeah, you know, it's e easier for. Yeah, but my living expenses. Third of their savings. Yeah, <laughs> but my living expenses are still super low, and like, and I mean, I'm saving enough that like I feel comfortable with like being okay, and uh, yeah, I mean, I just I feel like that's the appropriate level. Uh, um, tell about uh, nearly getting robbed in Chad, and then how that region played into you starting your foundation. These three kids came at us with like little knives and like tried to steal some of our things. But like, I didn't really, I thought of it more as like punk skateboard type kids, you know, like just, you know, fronting. I didn't really feel threatened in the way, I was like, these kids are obviously not gonna stab us. There were five of us and we were like much bigger than them. Cause they're probably like 14 year old chatting kids that are like living in the middle of the desert on like very restricted diet. You know I mean? They're like small little guys with very little knives. I don't know, I didn't, it didn't seem that dangerous. Um, thankfully they didn't stab us. <laughs> but, right. um, yeah, anyway, but so we had this crazy experience in Chad where like, I mean, I, I went on an expedition to Chad in 2010 and it was my first time going to like the full undeveloped world. I mean, there were no roads, there was no infrastructure of any kind. Like, it was the type of trip where before we went, my mom was like, send a postcard. And then I got there and was like, not only do I not know how to buy a postcard, there's like no mail, like there's no roads, like there's no, like there's no services, you know? It's not, I was like, it changed what I, what I saw a country, you know, it was like, what is a country if it's just like a bunch of, I don't know, it's just like an arbitrary line on a map, you know, because then we were driving across the open desert and they're just like people on camels and like crazy little villages out and it all felt very like Stone Age. And and so how did that then motivate yeah, so, you to start a foundation? So Chad was like this whole crazy experience and then over the next couple of years, um, I sort of, um, I was doing a lot of reading about like environmental issues and climate change and things like that and I sort of started to feel like I needed to to do something, you know, start some kind of foundation or like start donating money to charity. And then I felt like I should try to do it publicly just because like if I have anything, I have this public platform, you know, I felt like if I do it publicly, I can at least like hopefully inspire others to do the same or right. sort of sort of leverage that a little bit. And so I started my foundation and then, um, and then rather than just supporting environmental issues, I felt like I should support environmental issues that also improve people's standard of living, you know, that like help people in poverty. And so um, I've been doing a lot of like solar lighting projects in Africa, things like that where it like helps the environment in that they're not burning kerosene for light, but it also like really helps the actual people because you know, it's like a huge health issue to be burning kerosene in confined space. Like um, also they save a ton of money. You know, it's just that like basically people will never care about the environment if they're stuck in poverty. So I mean, you basically have to lift people out of poverty before they will care about like protecting the world around them. But I mean, hopefully I can use the foundation to like leave a positive mark on the world. Thanks for listening to my interview with Alex Honnold. To see more of our time with him, including a one-on-one -on -one climbing lesson in the Canadian Rockies, visit youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Graham Bensinger, and you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.